It won't surprise you uh, to hear me admit that I'm not big into preaching about the apocalypse in the last days. For most of my four decades of preaching, I have held at arm's length these New Testament apocalyptic texts about the second coming and the importance of being ready and alert because Jesus will come like a thief in the night. If there were other texts available for a given Sunday and I was given an easy out, I took it. Part of that, to be honest, was some spiritual trauma I incurred in my childhood and adolescence in the 1960s and 70s. And I've told you some about that from this pulpit. The movies that we brought into the church, like Thief in the Night and some others about being left behind in the rapture, and evangelistic preachers and books and Christian rock music all reinforced our fear that we would miss out on the rapture. I nearly wore out my needle on my turntable listening to Larry Norman, and here's a short clip. A man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. I wish we'd all been ready Two men walking up a hill One disappears and one's left standing still I wish we'd all been ready There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind In my early teens, I endured more than one sleepless night, worrying that I would be left behind for some sin I had committed that I wasn't even aware of. So as a preacher for many years, I just looked the other way when these texts were given as an option by our lectionary. Trouble is, when preaching from a lectionary, it's hard to keep avoiding year after year after year the scriptures you'd rather not deal with. Whether the old faithful revised common lectionary or the newer narrative lectionary, neither one cuts me a break. They both keep shoving these apocalyptic scriptures at me saying, here, preach it, preach it. So in the last 10 years or so, I've been doing it more. And I think I've preached as many sermons on the second coming in the last 10 years as I did the first 30 years of my preaching. Maybe I'm getting bolder or maybe just running out of excuses, but I find that the more time I spend in these texts, the more, and the more I immerse myself in the social and religious context out of which they emerged, the more I love them and I'm actually drawn toward them. It takes some adaptation for our context, but they are relevant and needed, I believe, if we understand them more deeply and authentically. I'll just be frank and say that we Mennonites and most of the Christian evangelical world have long been drawing the wrong conclusion from these texts. Yes, there are many people who find courage and hope 
in the notion that Christ is coming sooner rather than later to extract us from this evil world and take us away to heaven. And for those whose lives in this world are painful or maybe even nearly unbearable, I don't fault them for holding on to this sort of escapist view of the end times. But I would say emphatically, I don't believe it was the intent of Jesus or the gospel writers documenting Jesus to instill fear and dread into the psyche of the disciples, nor to convince the church of Jesus that God's number one goal was to safely remove them all from this earth before God obliterated the earth and condemned to hell all people who hadn't accepted Jesus or prayed the sinner's prayer. A God that would do such a thing is not a God I recognize from the rest of Scripture. I think it's a God we created, prompted by an American church in the 60s and 70s that felt highly threatened by all the social and political turmoil and change going on. It was our contextual response to a season of civil unrest and the social decline of the church. And then it got institutionalized in evangelical theology and it hasn't gone away. Apocalyptic Christian movies haven't gone away either. This one, Heaven's War, came out just three years ago. In fact, the continuing marginalization of the church in Western culture keeps on fueling this battle mindset of the church against the world. And it still fires up all the culture wars among Christians and stokes the fires of the political polarization that we are seeing today. We end up with Christian churches and preachers obsessed with God doing war against the world and calling us Christians to join the battle to the death. Is it any wonder the close association of God and guns on bumper stickers and t-shirts and placards wherever there are angry people protesting against the so-called deep state? I want to suggest this morning that the best antidote for this violent mindset and this corruption of religion is a better and truer reading of these apocalyptic scriptures. And we start with the most basic affirmation of God's character, God's love and compassion for the world and all humankind. Can we all agree to make that our foundation and build on top of that? So what was our God of love and compassion most concerned about in the first century of the church in the Roman Empire? God sent Jesus into our world as an expression of love, not terror. 
Jesus came for the healing and reconciliation of all creation. All creation. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As I said from this pulpit on, in my last sermon on this topic, just a few months ago actually, the resurrection of Jesus was evidence to his followers that the hope of a political deliverance from Rome wasn't over. The cross may have looked like a loss, but Jesus defeated Herod and Caesar with the empty tomb, and Jesus would soon return with angels of heaven, they believed, and would take vengeance on the evildoers who killed him. He would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem as prophesied and execute justice and judgment against the empire and everyone responsible for his crucifixion. The real world here and now at that time would be made right for the Jews and everyone else. And I think that's what salvation meant, it seems, for these first Jewish followers of Jesus. But that definition of salvation only makes sense if Jesus' return was very soon, before winter turned into spring and summer. So the imminent return of Jesus with the angels to set everything right in the world was the dominant mindset of the early Christians. And as the faith spread and new churches started popping up all over the Roman Empire, this view started to seem less realistic and less relevant. Not only were they far away from Jerusalem where all this was supposed to take place, it didn't seem as urgent to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians living in Asia Minor, or even less urgent to Gentile believers. So Jesus and the, that promise started to fade in importance in the scattered church. Some called Jesus a fraud outright. And one of their big arguments was, see, he didn't return as promised. He's dead and gone and irrelevant. Remember, this was before the Gospels and the epistles were familiar to the church, long before they were considered to be scripture. And before there was any well-established Christology. So Jesus and his teachings faded for some in the church and their ethical framework around Jesus faded as well. All manner of morally corrupt behaviors became commonplace even among leaders of the church, including abuse of power, exploitation of others, and they started looking more like their neighbors, more like the empire, and less like Jesus. This is why the writer of 2 Peter wrote in verse 3 of chapter 3, in the last days, in other words, now, 
Scoffers will come, jeering, living by their own cravings, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Nothing has changed. You see, in its proper context, that statement makes perfect sense. And so does the rest of 2 Peter and the Gospel of Matthew. They are speaking to present reality on the ground. The point was never to scare people out of hell and whisk them off and away to heaven. The point is to remind people of God's deep and everlasting love and patience. Listen to verse 9. The Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to change their hearts and lives. And verse 15, consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been warned in advance, be on guard so that you aren't led off course into the error of sinful people. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all for love. It's all for love that God is being patient with us. God's heart God's deepest desire is to see the human race reconciled to each other and reconciled to God and all creation reconciled as well. God's big project is a shalom project where all are whole and complete and living the lives they were created to live. And God is not in a hurry to shut down this project. And we should have the same mindset, the same love toward our world today. And keep our eyes on Jesus and the love of Jesus. Second Peter is a call for Jesus followers to be patient because God is patient. And what looks like slowness or inaction from a human point of view looks like love and compassion from a God point of view. That kind of thinking, I believe, is a great antidote against the fear-based, church-against-the-world mindset that grips so many people today who call themselves Christians and who resort to ways of violence and coercion and political foul play to bring about the kind of world that they believe is the right one. <clears throat> Let us instead, because of love, be patient. Because God is patient. Let us be strong and bold in our witness, but let that witness be steeped in love and look like love. And let God be in charge of, of any timeline. <clears throat> yes, there's a place for accountability in God's economy. 
This doesn't do away with the judgment side of God. But love and reconciliation always come to the forefront. That's the message of Scripture. And I think that attitude and point of view is entirely consistent with a careful reading of these apocalyptic scriptures. And it's a truer reading, I believe, than what Hal Lindsey and others gave us 50 years ago, which still shape Christianity today. It's all for love. Let us confess our faith together. <clears throat> Before we do, <clears throat> go ahead and turn to Voices Together, number 407. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, or you can just follow what's on the screen when we get to that hymn. Because we will go immediately into singing that hymn when we finish the confession, which, in which I incorporated some phrases from that hymn. In a wounded world that often overwhelms us, we are tempted to long for our escape to another world rather than wait for your promised restoration and your return to us and to this world of ours that you still love. Come, Lord Jesus. Help us view the present through the promise Christ will come again. Help us trust, despite the deepening darkness, Christ will come again. May we let our daily actions witness Christ will come again. May we make this hope our guiding premise, Christ will come again. <clears throat>